The Hamlet Podcast, episode 62. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Macbeth with me, your host, Connor Hanrity. The first scene of this final act has been a rather startling recap of all the troubles that have gathered in Lady Macbeth's tortured mind. We've been given a look at the damage that this play has done to her and the breakdown of the relationship between the Macbeths. Now, for Act 5, Scene 2, we get another short scene, a kind of an introduction to the remainder of the play and some of the main agents at work in it. This scene features Lennox and Angus, whom we haven't heard since Act 1. With them are Menteith, Caithness and other unnamed soldiers, depending on how many actors a production can afford to bring on. The setting announces that we are in the countryside near Dunsinane, Macbeth's location. Menteith speaks first, telling us that the English power is near, led on by Malcolm, his uncle Seward, and the good Macduff. Revenges burn in them, for their dear causes would, to the bleeding and the grim alarm, excite the mortified man. This is all helpful information. The English army, provided by King Edward, has made its way to Scotland and is now nearby. It's led, as we know, by Malcolm and Macduff, and by Malcolm's grandfather, Seward. According to Hollinshed, Seward's daughter was Duncan's wife, and therefore, we can assume, mother to Malcolm and Donalbane. Rather weirdly, Shakespeare calls Seward Malcolm's uncle, Perhaps Grandfather had too many syllables, or implied that he was too old a man to be as part of this campaign. We'll have more talk of Seward ages in a later episode. Note that Menteith also insists on calling him Good Macduff. It's just a little nod to remind us on whose side we are increasingly going to find ourselves. He explains the zeal with which these three men are leading this army on their march to Scotland. They all have reason for revenge. Revenges burn in them. The causes that they have to fight Macbeth, given the various family members he has murdered, are so intense that they could raise the dead to join the fight. Their dear causes would, to the bleeding and grim alarm, excite the mortified man. It's the kind of excited fighting talk you would need to rouse a rabble, and is very effective. It's Angus that speaks next to give us our location. He says, Near Burnham Wood shall we well meet them. That way are they coming. We've already heard of Burnham Wood. The third apparition told Macbeth that he would be safe on his throne until this ancient forest uprooted itself and came to Dunsinane Hill against him. They're far enough apart, these two locations, for this to be unthinkable, and they're also far enough apart that it's a good strategic place for the English army to meet with these Scottish leaders and their forces. Next, Caithness, another noble, asks, Who knows if Donalbane be with his brother? He's wondering if Donalbane has come back from Ireland to fight with Malcolm to avenge their father. It's Lennox that answers. For certain, sir, he is not. I have a file of all the gentry. There is Seward's son, and many unrough youths that even now protest their first of manhood. 
Lennox has been the most politically curious figure in the play. He's risen in the ranks as Macbeth took the throne, and has been close enough to hear some very important information from him. But now he's standing with these men, apparently against Macbeth. He's a catch for their cause, certainly, since, as he says here, he has details of every noble family in Scotland and their whereabouts. As Macbeth told us many scenes ago, there's not a house in the country where he doesn't keep a spy. So Lennox really can confirm that Donald Bain is not back, since his files know all. But Seward's son, apparently much younger than the daughter who might have been Duncan's wife, is among them, along with many other young soldiers who are even now preparing for their first test as fighting military men. Shakespeare calls them unruff antonym of smooth, because they don't yet have hair on their faces. Menteith asks, what does the tyrant? Again, it's worth tracking the use of this word. There's no hint of them referring to Macbeth as their king, but as a tyrant, quite openly now. Interestingly, it's not Lennox that answers, but Caithness, who says, great Dunsinane he strongly fortifies. Some say he's mad. Others that lesser hate him do call it valiant fury. But, for certain, he cannot buckle his distempered cause within the belt of rule. Macbeth is fortifying the castle. Strongly, indeed, since even if he's completely convinced that the prophecies will keep him safe, He's not foolish enough to hear of an advancing horde and do nothing about it. Some people are saying he's mad, and others, who don't hate him as much, say that he's acting in valiant fury. Neither has the ring of the approaches of a sane, reliable leader. Caithness continues with a terrific metaphor, implying that the kingdom has become so unruly for Macbeth that he'll never again be able to fasten the belt of rule around it. Shakespeare manages to combine indigestion, distemper, and our beloved clothing metaphor here. Now Macbeth's robes don't fit because he, or by extension the kingdom, is bloated with discontent and revolt. Caithness is saying that regardless of whether he's mad or valiant, Macbeth will no longer be able to control the kingdom, and he's got no hope of buckling his belt of rule around it. Angus has more to say too, Now does he feel his secret murder sticking on his hands. Now minutely revolts upbraid his faith breach. Those he commands move only in command, nothing in love. Now does he feel his title hang loose about him, like a giant's robe upon a dwarfish thief. Here's another secret being discussed quite openly. Angus is suggesting that Macbeth is haunted by the blood of all his secret murders sticking on his hands. There's a sad irony to our just having seen Lady Macbeth suffering from this. Macbeth? Well, we'll have to wait and see how he's doing. Angus tells the men that every minute new revolts are bubbling up against Macbeth's serious crimes, his breaches of faith. Now minutely revolts up braid his faith breach. What's worse for Macbeth is that he's losing the hearts of his followers. Angus says that they do what he says only because they have to, not because they love or follow him. 
those he commands move only in command, nothing in love. And for good measure, Angus gives us even more of a clothing metaphor to think about. He says that Macbeth's title, King, is hanging loose about him, like a giant's robe upon a dwarfish thief. Macbeth isn't up to the job. He's a little man that has been dwarfed by the responsibility of the throne and looks like nothing more than a thief as he tries to occupy it. Menteith chimes in, saying, Who then shall blame his pestered senses to recoil and start when all that is within him does condemn itself for being there? As if picking up Caithness's image of the kingdom as a diseased body that is swelling and out of control, Menteith's image is of Macbeth's own body revolting against him from within. Who could blame Macbeth's pestered senses for recoiling and starting against him when everything within him, every bit of him, is ashamed of being part of him? This is a weird image, but I rather like Menteith for committing to such a strong, if wrong, idea and trying to make it work. You can imagine the looks he gets from his fellow soldiers for such a distended metaphor. As if to change the subject, Caithness pipes up and finishes Menteith's line of verse. Well, we march on. To give obedience where it is truly owed, meet we the medicine of the sickly wheel, and with him pour we in our country's purge each drop of us. Well, he's saying, we'll proceed to go and join Malcolm and the English army. Unlike all these images of inner turmoil and revolt, they'll give their allegiance and obedience where it is truly owed. They'll meet the medicine, Malcolm, who will cure this sickly wheel, Scotland, and to help purge the country, they'll each shed every drop of blood they have. Them's fighting words indeed. Lennox finishes the scene, adding or so much as it needs, to dew the sovereign flower and drown the weeds. Make we our march towards Burnham. This feels like a slightly damp ending after Caithness was so bloody, bold and resolute. Lennox is suggesting that they'll spill enough blood to nourish the sovereign flower, the true heir to the throne, and drown all the weeds that are flourishing and choking this great garden of Scotland. And so they make their march towards Burnham. This has been another scene filled with information more than action, but the sheer excitement of hearing these men talk openly about how Macbeth is a murderer and a tyrant, how the English are approaching Burnham Wood, which, if you know the play, you know is going to be very exciting. We're seeing Lennox, even Lennox has left Macbeth by the look of it, and now these men are going to go and fight with all they have to save the country. There are a great many more scenes to come in Act 5, and in the next, we'll finally see Macbeth again. We'll launch into that next week, and I hope you'll join me then.